everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. Let's jump in. Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I am so glad to be off a hiatus and officially starting new episodes to finish out this season of Black Tech Unplugged. To kick off the brand new episode, I have Dr. Kalia Braswell on the episode. She's an award-winning technologist whose personal mission is to make social change using technology. Dr. Braswell graduated from North Carolina State with a BS in computer science, and then she traveled to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte to get her master's in information technology with a concentration in human-computer interaction. And then lastly, to get her doctorate degree, Dr. Braswell was a Presidential Future Faculty Fellow at Temple University, where she obtained her PhD in education with a focus on science, math, and education technology. And so we'll learn more about Kalia's experience getting her PhD and it's definitely not what you would think it is. She even recommends that most people not pursue a PhD. On this episode, we'll talk about all of those goodies. Plus, she'll also talk about her experience at Apple, which we all love to hear about experiences at fang companies. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, make sure to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this episode today. So give us five stars or the highest ratings. And then also, if you have time, write a review. A lot of people are looking for podcasts that are related to tech. And so by writing a review, you'll help people find the episodes. So again, happy to be off hiatus. So happy to bring you this episode. You can find also the full video episode of this podcast on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com backslash black tech unplugged. And also you can find all of Kalia's information in the show notes if you want to connect with her after listening to this episode. All right, let's get it. and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I have a doctor in the house. So (laughs) Dr. KB, welcome to Black Tech Unplugged. I feel like it's been a long time coming, but glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I look forward to the conversation. Yes. And for those who are not familiar with you and the wonderful work that you've been doing, want to give a brief introduction of yourself? I am Kalia Braswell, Dr. Kalia Braswell, as of a few months ago. I am a technologist slash educator slash researcher. Kind of found myself in the middle of a lot of different spaces, but I've been in tech for decades now. I've been coding since I was in high school. Got a computer science degree from NC State in North Carolina, a master's in IT from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And then most recently, my PhD in education from Temple University, where I studied how do we get more Black girls in tech using a virtual summer camp that I ran during the pandemic through the nonprofit that I started in Tech Camp for Girls is still standing strong. So I was able to write my dissertation about the work that I did with that nonprofit. I love music, tea, and books. And I live in Atlanta, Georgia now. Everybody's in Atlanta now. I feel Literally like- everybody. <laughs> And we're all stuck on 85. It's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I will talk about most of the things that you mentioned in your introduction. Today, I want to focus on the PhD portion. So let's start with what made you even pursue that path when it comes to your career? Good question. I was exposed to PhDs and just research as a career when I was an undergrad. So at NC State in the College of Engineering, I think my junior or senior year, I started doing undergraduate research and that was when I was exposed to it. And so I was working on a research project where we were disseminating information about HIV and AIDS to college age Black women. And it was just really cool to see how technology could be a conduit for information to that population and that we could research it and actually publish. And so I did quite a few like graduate preview programs specifically for minority students, um, one of them being at Georgia Tech, which is called Focus, which I think is still running. And it's literally just to give you a crash course on everything you need to know as a minority student going to graduate school, whether that's master's, but mostly PhD. And so my bonus year at NC State, I applied to three programs and I did not get into any of them. So I was like, huh, all right, got a pivot here. And so I did reach out to one of the professors who I thought, you know, I, I just knew I was going to get into their lab. And their advice to me was to go get a master's degree and then reapply. Essentially, even though my resume was stellar, my grades were not. <laughs> mm. um, you know, I struggled, I struggled to and through the computer science program, but I finished. But in comparison to the other students, right, when they're looking at grades, things of that sort, my transcript just didn't measure up. So I took his advice. I went and got a master's. I want to circle back because you mentioned a couple things that are so key within your career. One is the art of the pivot. So you think you're going to do all this stuff. And then I said, haha, like, no, your plans ain't going to work today. And story of my life. Different direction. <laughs> yeah, story of my life, literally. But you also mentioned the exposure piece. So being exposed to the PhD and the graduate level, how did you get that exposure? Because a lot of people that look like us don't have that exposure. Well, I, I did research my sophomore year at NC State uh, with a professor, but they didn't really tie into like, hey, you could do this as a career, because a lot of times we think PhD, we think professor, which is a right assumption. But as a student, you don't realize all that a professor does. And so at Research One institutions, which I'm used to, a lot of them are teaching, sure, but they're also doing research. And so it took my second research experience to understand, oh, okay, there's a connection here. And the professor that I did research with the second time was a Black woman, and she had colleagues around the world at, at these different places. And so she sent us to Clemson University, who at the time, Dr. Juan Gilbert was running a research lab there with like the most Black students. It, I don't know that the program was computer science, but it definitely was human-centered computing. I'm not sure where it sat on Clemson's campus, but imagine me and two of my friends from high school that were also with me at NC State rolling up to Clemson and seeing more Black engineers getting PhDs. And I think she was also the same professor that sent us to the Georgia Tech program just to make sure that we knew that that could be an option for us. And so the exposure was as a result of networking and just being connected with folks who knew more about that space than us. And then so you go to the master's program. What did you master yeah. in and what was that experience like for you? For one, it was humbling, right? Because I didn't want to get a master's. I just wanted to go straight through and get a PhD. And so it's like, all right, I guess I got to go this other pathway to get there, right? So at NC State, we had a college of engineering where the computer science department sat. 
at, at UNC Charlotte, there's a college of computing where computer science sits, but also information technology. And for them, their IT masters had a human computer interaction concentration. I knew whatever I did, it needed to be interdisciplinary. I needed to be able to do more than just tech classes. And that master's program that I didn't even know about allowed me to do that. And so my final degree was a master's in information technology with a focus in human computer interaction. And so I had to take software engineering, sure, but I also was able to take a class about the brain. I took a class in the business school as well as an elective. And then I found myself actually going down a path of usable privacy and security. Um, mm-hmm. There's a big conference in that space called Soups. I actually presented there. It's like a pretty much like a lightning talk. I, I submitted and presented at Facebook's headquarters, which was super cool. But then I got an internship at Apple, and that just changed the whole game. And I went to Apple for a year, which you generally don't take a year off of a master's. And you generally don't take a whole year to intern, but they were paying for everything and it's Apple, right? And so I got there and I learned how to design and I learned how to do user research. And I was like, now, why would I go pay? Because I paid for my master's. I did not pay for a PhD and only had to pay for that, that extra year of my undergrad. But I'm like, why would I go pay to learn when they're teaching me and they're paying me at the same time, that doesn't make any sense. So I almost didn't finish the master's. And after that, I was just like, I'm not even getting a PhD. I'm going to just work and they're going to teach me. And so that was my philosophy for a, a, a while. So it's a miracle that I actually got to the other side of the PhD, to be honest. So I got my master's. And I do not have a PhD. Maybe I'll look into it after our conversation, but not there yet. No, <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> but even with the master's, Why is there no money for masters? Okay, I'm going to put you on a little secret. It's not, I don't think it's ethical, but it's not unethical. (laughs) Because of that, they'll go and they'll apply for a PhD because generally PhDs are fully funded. You're getting paid to go to school. You're not getting paid a lot, but you get paid to go to school. Your tuition is paid and you may have to do like um, an assistantship or something. I didn't. Happy to tell that story. So some people will go get that full PhD package and do what they call masters out. So they'll stop at the master's degree, graduate, and be like, I'm not going to finish this. I don't know if there's any backlash that they get for that, but it's common. Don't say Kalia said, you know, this is not (laughs) advice. I'm just telling you that I've heard of this happening. And again, I don't think it's ethical. I think your output will kind of show what you're there for, and your advisor will likely be able to snoop you out. So you don't really want to be in that position, but also... It's like that because masters generally are not free in the tech space, which I think is ridiculous. So, And don't think I'm going to let you skip over your Apple adventure. So, you know, everyone always wants to work at a fame company and, you know, all that stuff. What was your experience at Apple? All right. So I talk about my experience at Apple in two phases, the internship and the full-time phase. The internship was great. I had some rough patches with management. I'm not even going to lie, but I feel like Apple was never in my purview. Like it was never a goal. The way that the internship came about, I was just kind of like, okay, I don't have anything to lose here. Like that was kind of my mentality. So I was on like Black at Apple. I was like on a leadership team for that. I was part of women at Apple and I was like very vocal about some things. I remember, and now I'm cool with her, but like at the time, Denise Young-Smith was the VP of HR at Apple, Black woman. And I had a meeting with her my last day (laughs) 
And I told her all the things I went through. Like, I just didn't, it wasn't even I didn't care. I think I cared a lot, actually. Because as a Black intern, I felt like Apple was putting a lot of effort in recruiting, but not retaining Black talent. And I just struggled with that because I'm like, it actually wasn't all rosy, right? And when I talk about my full-time experience, that's what I mean, where it's like, the microaggressions are there. And my full-time team was pretty diverse. We had, had a woman who was a leader. She was fantastic. She was the reason why I joined that team. And right, like it was, it was actually very diverse in both race category and gender. But there was just some weird things going on on that team. And I didn't love it. And I started to kind of retreat, if you will. But I think it was less about Apple and more about me wanting to go 100% into the nonprofit. But I just kind of struggled on the work full-time work side. I think that what gave me the most joy was Apple had an HBCU scholar program. And I was able to mentor quite a few um, students from that. And so the summertime was always great because it's like, oh, we got interns. Like, this is going to be great. But then when they would leave, it's like, oh, man, there go two Black girls. They're gone. They're not going to be here no more. Oh, my team specifically. Because in my <laughs> building, a lot of people... You know, Apple has a lot of different buildings across two different cities within the Bay Area. And in my building specifically, as when I was full time, I was the only black woman in that building. Oh, no, no, no. My friend Nisi worked in there, too. It's two of us. She was upstairs and I was downstairs. So it felt like I was the only one in that building. And so just being in a space where I'm the only one and I don't have to be in that space, like I don't prefer it. And I just had to learn that about myself, not specifically to Apple, but also in the Bay Area in general, it was hard because I grew up in North Carolina. So I'm just used to seeing Black people everywhere all the time. I talk about this a lot, how a lot of my leaders in tech early on were Black women, men. So it was just jarring, honestly. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, what was it like for you being the only one? Yeah, it was interesting. So for those who aren't aware, like the Bay Area is really big and a lot of people live all over and have to commute to work. And Apple has these really big Mercedes-Benz coach buses that we catch throughout the city. So I lived in Oakland, so I could see Black people. And I would commute to work about an hour and a half each way a day. So about three hours on that bus. It was terrible. And so there would be times, you know, I got my Afro out now, but I would have my two-strand twist. And I catch the bus so early that I can't take it out. So I, I throw on a head wrap until I get to work. Then I take my hair down. There was a time where I walked by some colleagues with my head wrapped and they didn't even say, hey, because they didn't know it was me. And I'm like, come on now. Y'all do not see that many black women on a daily basis. Right. Um, they literally didn't speak. And then I kind of look, I looked back and I saw them look back. And so it was just a very weird, and awkward experience. But, you know, in the Bay and in tech, like you can come at your full self. So that's 100 percent what I did. Um, yeah. I didn't wear the head wrap whole, the whole day, but there would be some times where I would because who cares? No one cared. But, but the fact that you act like you didn't know, recognize me because I kind of get rap on, weird. I had some weird interactions at that company, but I will say I did meet some great people <laughs> and I learned a lot. <laughs> I was going to say, what's the greatest lesson you learned there? The greatest lesson that I learned at Apple, I don't know how to package it into one thing, but as a consumer, we're all familiar with surprise and delight, which is a thing at Apple and just how the experience is. You go into the Apple store, you buy a new product, you open it up. Like just being very tight on experience is key because that'll keep your customers coming back. 
And I was able to kind of take that same work ethic with an in-tech and making sure like end-to-end from a design perspective and just overall experience, whether that's digital or in-person, that all the T's are crossed, I's are dotted to make it a, a very welcoming experience for our students and our parents and things of that sort. So Nice. I love that because they do have a really good customer experience. Mine is not giving you the phone charger now when they give you the phone <laughs> But everything else it's, for the most part. It's a hot mess. Yeah, but I, I I had a great time overall. I think looking back at it now, I can talk more fondly now that I've processed the, all the things. And one of my in-tech students is, is interning at Apple this summer, and she came to us when she was in the sixth grade. So it's always great for that kind of stuff. That I know, right? Crazy. Just that's like crazy. that's a full circle moment. Yeah, and she's at HBCU's scholar too. So Oh, wonderful. And I know that you mentioned Intech. So for the people who are listening and who are not familiar with Intech, let's break down what that is, how that got started. I can talk to y'all about the Intech that I started. It's pivoted a little, which is not a bad thing. So in 2014, April 2014, I received a grant from the National Center for Women in Information Technology for a one-day camp at UNC Charlotte. That event grew into Intech Camp for Girls, a nonprofit whose mission was to inform and inspire girls to innovate in the technology industry. And so in its infancy, I would do one day camps. And then that evolved into one week camps for middle school girls. And then once the middle school girls aged out, they started asking me for more things. And so we were able to launch a virtual InTech Academy. We did a pilot right before the pandemic and the pandemic happened. And it was like, all right, well, we kind of leaned into virtual programming and so are training girls in technology in high school during the pandemic on Zoom. So very rewarding work, but I just decided that I wanted to step down. So hired an executive director who's leading the charge now. And to just be clear of people who are listening, were you doing that while you were at Apple? Yes. InTech started my first year of my master's. And then I moved to California to work at Apple. When I came back, we hosted three camps in one day in three different cities in South Carolina. Every time I talk about it, even all these years later, it's insane. But that was with Teach for America, South Carolina, which was amazing for folks to work with, but also amazing uh, that we were able to do that. And then I think the next year, so 2016, we partnered with the Urban League of Central Carolinas in Charlotte to do a one-week camp in Charlotte. And that was the same year I graduated from my master's and went back to Apple full-time. So then as we continue to scale, yes, I was working full time. And then I stopped working at Apple in January of 2018 and was running in tech full time until March 2022. Now, how are you balancing all of that? Because that's just like, even like think about it, I'm like, ooh, I don't like, I feel like you have like four different versions of you in four different cities. <laughs> yeah, that's that's accurate, actually. It's kind of crazy <laughs> how that works. So yeah, there are. My, my best version of myself is in Atlanta, though, because <laughs> I have my friends. I don't do all of this stuff no more. I just work. Right. No, it was kind of crazy. So when I was working full time at Apple and trying to run in tech from the West Coast, it was pretty wild because I remember like we did a camp at NC State, which is where I graduated from. And luckily, my friends were running that camp because I was in charge of like ordering the food every morning. Okay. morning my time but lunchtime their time and mm-hmm. like there was a time when they had like ran out of food but they didn't tell me that so it was just kind of like well we're just gonna make this work those are the kind of people they are though it's not like hey we have a problem it's like no let's pivot 
we later worked with NC State to help pay for us to eat in the dining hall. So <laughs> crisis averted. But like literally, I'm like waking up starting my West Coast day and they're halfway through camp. And then I'm trying to get a debrief after my work day. And so it was a lot of back and forth. But shout out to all of my friends in this space, in tech, who stepped up to help. My best friend and I, we used to live together in Oakland and she ran, she's a fashion stylist but worked full-time at Gap. And so we literally would like, we would pick one day for the weekend where we're having fun. And then the other day where we're working, sometimes we would do both in one day. It's like, all right, we're going to do our side hustle in the morning, but in the afternoon we're at the party or vice versa. (laughs) I don't think I could do that in my thirties. In my twenties, it sounds crazy, (laughs) but I was able to do it. Cause again, my commute was three hours a day. I was trying to go to the gym. I can't even imagine. It's making me tired talking about it. (laughs) I don't know that I can ever do that commute again. So we talk about pivoting a lot and the work piece, but I want to dig deeper into the PhD program. Like why, why did you even go? I know you were determined originally. What made you still even want to go after you were working at Apple and you're getting all this experience? So I was still in, in contact with that community. So a lot of folks in the computer science education space, my professors at UNC Charlotte, And so I've always still had a network of folks in the academy, if you will. And a lot of my friends have PhDs. So I quit Apple January 2018. I was not getting paid by Intech, but I took the risk to to jump in and just say, hey, let me just do this full time. But I still needed money, right? And so Mm -hmm. I taught a summer program in Charlotte for high school students I think it was called Tech Charlotte. It doesn't exist anymore. It was with the city though. And so students got tech training from me, professional development training from two of my friends, which I think one of them has been on your podcast, Leticia Bird. And then I think the second half of the summer, they went off and had internships. That same summer, I taught the Computer Science Summer Institute at Johnson C. Smith, and that was a Google program. And so I taught Python and front-end development to incoming freshmen for three weeks. So the first two weeks were in-class instruction, and then the last week was them building their own product. And so that kept me paid. But what I realized was, one, that I like teaching, but two, I was very curious about computer science teachers, because at that point, I had two technical degrees, mm-hmm. and there were questions I was getting from my students that I couldn't necessarily answer in the moment. Yeah, And it made me wonder well, what are computer science teachers doing who don't have technical degrees or technical work experience, but they're teaching computer science, whether it's by choice or by force, because, you know, their principal told them to, just because they taught math, things of that sort. It happens a lot in K-12. And it just made me curious. And so the person who became my advisor at Temple, she and I met up for dinner in Philly one in November of 2018. So the same year that I quit Apple. First of all, I told her I'd never move to Philadelphia, joke on me. But then second, I was like, you know, just just having this conversation because I, I wasn't able to have it at a scholarly level. Mm. And she encouraged me to come to a conference, the special interest group for computer science education. It was in March of 2019. She's like, just come and see, you know, what people are talking about, what kind of research they're doing and just see, you know, maybe the PhD will come back around. Maybe this is something you could study and find out. And so I went, I went to the conference and I was very energized by the conversations that were being had. And it was at that conference when I realized, like, I knew to get into a PhD program, it was all new, but I didn't know that, like, the powers that be could just say, 
who cares that it's March? If you want to get a PhD, you can come start in the fall. Because I'm thinking by March, the application deadline is over for right. going to grad school. So it's March 2019. I'm at dinner and someone literally says, well, if you want to come get a PhD, like I have funding, you can come in the fall. I came to that conference thinking, oh, I'll get a PhD in 2020, you know, if it's on the table. I'll, I'll keep thinking about it, take the rest of the year, have some conversations. Right. So I left at dinner like, I can get a PhD now? I was kind of confused. And there were some folks who I look up to who are at that conference, Black women who I, I trust, and I was having a conversation with them. And so that changed everything. And I called my advisor back, the same person who I told I would never move to Philadelphia. I called her back after the conference and said, hey, so I didn't know that this was possible for this year. Like, what do you think? You know, I'm running in tech full time. At the end of the conversation, I said, well, do you have funding for a PhD student? And she was like, oh, I'll find some funding if you want to come. And about a week or two later, she emailed me like, you got a full ride to Temple. Here's what I will pay you. Here's your insurance. Your tuition is paid. And at the very bottom of that email, she mentioned that Temple's grad school has two fellowships. And she's going to, she's like, I think it's already closed, but I'm going to go talk to them. Okay, cool. Right. Wow. First of all, I'm going to grad school. (laughs) I got a full ride. Like, let's do this. But then secondly, like I'm doing this now, right? And so then she called me a few days after she sent me that email and said that not only did I get one of the fellowships at the graduate school, but they wanted to offer me both of them, but you can't take them both. So I, I got into grad school and the fellowship was great because it doesn't require you to do any graduate assistantship or teaching assistantship. So earlier I mentioned that a lot of times to go for free, there's some kind of labor involved, whether you're doing research or you're your TA right, or both. And I didn't have to do any of those things. And I still was able to get my stipend. Although, I mean, you're doing your own research. So like you're not having to apply for research assistantships or things of that sort. It's like guaranteed funding for four years for you to do your work. And so the rest was history after that. You mentioned you had the network to get this opportunity, right? So you went to a conference, you were talking to people. How do people, if they want to get a PhD and right now they might not have that network, how do you start building that? You don't want to have to get ready later on. You want to be ready, you know, when you're ready. Literally, that's that's a good point because I think that's what helped me the second time around. Honestly, Twitter was a great space to meet academics. A lot of the folks that I know are on Twitter. I don't know how much longer that'll last. Because <laughs> um, I'm trying to think beyond like following professors, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm talking about a 10. If there's something that you want to study, there is a conference that exists for it. So maybe following the conference. So like I'm in the computer science education space. SIGSI, the Special Interest Group for Computer Science Education, is one of the largest spaces to publish. And so maybe going on their website and just reading a few papers and following folks who are writing about things that you're interested in. I'm not sure how how much it costs to join the special interest group. So I'm trying to think of like cost-effective ways even. Um, There are probably different groups on Facebook and or LinkedIn around folks who have PhDs in certain disciplines that may be willing to, to allow folks who don't have PhDs for that networking opportunity. A lot of the folks who I know with PhDs, I met through NSBE, the National Society of Black Engineers, which is just 
friends and colleagues who ended up going the full route. But being a part of those professional organizations and learning who's in it and who's doing what is is one of the, the, the better ways. Okay. And so you get into the PhD program, you're doing everything. One thing I want to call out is you are not working full-time and doing this PhD. That can't happen. <laughs> well, I was running in tech full-time and doing the PhD. Okay. Okay. Because at one point I had like a full staff and um, yeah, it got out of hand really quickly. But for me, my PhD classes, all Temple grad classes were at 5.30 p.m. And okay. so at the beginning, I was like trying to be a super student and like I'm on campus early and all day. And then I'm like, OK, I don't need to do this. I got burned out really quickly. Ooh. And so I had to kind of like restructure my days in a way that worked for me. I got really anal about my calendar for Intech. So I was not taking meetings before 10 a.m. And I would only take meetings on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And I had a window for those meetings. I knew like, okay, I need to be on campus no later than five to find a parking spot, eat dinner if I decide to do that. Like I had to learn how to make it sustainable. Um, But when you're taking a full load of classes, it is not ideal to work full time or try to run a business. It's not sustainable. I burned out several times, which is probably why I'm not part of Intech right now, to be honest. <laughs> it became to be too much. Honestly, though, Dina, I don't even suggest people getting a PhD. <laughs> why? Okay, let's talk about it. Why do you not suggest why? people get a PhD? Okay, to be fair, I went because one, it was a goal that I made years ago, right? But two, I literally had something because what I think what happened, um, you know, I'll talk about how oh, I went to Apple and I decided I didn't want to get the PhD anymore. I wasn't interested in anything enough to be committed to a PhD. To say I want to make a social change using technology is cute, but like, what does that mean? Right. But the second time around, I knew like, I want to do research about computer science teachers in the K through 12 space. Like I was very like clear, not saying that you need that, but you need something because right. getting a PhD is time consuming and is labor intensive. It can be. And it is very political. So beyond taking the courses, beyond doing the research, it's political. I mean, I think everything probably is at this point, but like Mm -hmm. having to manage an advisor, manage a committee, dealing with things that, in my opinion, sometimes are unnecessary Mm -hmm. happens to everybody. And some people's stories are worse than others. I think I made it out okay, but I did have some bumps in the road where I had to like let go of a committee chair, not the advisor who I spoke about who helped me get the funding. Mm-hmm. At the time, she was only a computer science professor. By the time I finished, she had dual appointment in the education school because I didn't even talk about. Actually, this is wrapped up in it. I left the computer science PhD program and almost quit the whole thing. But we found a workaround with, by me switching into education because I was able to do the same research. The classes were just different and it was a much better environment for me. So the fact that I had to fail the class my first year, I had to report a professor and I switched programs. <laughs> like what? you shouldn't have to do all that. It's not even what? common for people to switch programs at a PhD level. But I do have friends who, for various reasons, had to switch universities during their program. And so then when that happens, the requirements change and you may be in there longer. And so I'm just saying all this to keep it real. You got to really want it. Some folks want to just be called doctor. None of this is something that you want to go through just to be called doctor on the other side, I promise. Let's go back to like some of the failures because you don't shock me and I need to, I just need to- Let's be talk about it. Her. 
Okay, let's start with the failed class. What happened? Data structures. Oh, it's terrible class. It was when I it was it was a terrible class when I took it at NC State. It was a terrible <laughs> class when I took it. Actually, I don't think I took data structures. It was some, I took another. I think I took, just took like a software engineering class in my master's. That was more bearable. But those algorithms took me out. And like, and also my grandfather passed at the beginning of 2020 when I was taking this class. And so, but I still was determined, right? It's like, right. all right, I'm familiar with this content. What I realized is that the environment and the climate of the classroom is different in computer science than it was in education. In education, they trying to, they treat you like colleagues already, right? Um, right. We're calling our professors by our first name. Um, we're able to just raise our hand and say what we have to say. There's healthy dialogue happening. The professors over there own their mistakes because, I mean, we all make them. In mm-hmm. computer science, everybody is intimidated. The professors are trying to intimidate you. <laughs> it's not a healthy culture of, I want you to succeed. It's a culture of, well, you failed. And so basically for data structures, the first few homeworks, I wasn't making great grades on, but then I started killing it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm making 100s on homeworks and I still failed the class. Here's how. The syllabus was set up in a way where your homework was worth 10 or maybe 20% of your grade. The okay. exams were what was worth majority of the grade. So I, I feel like, I don't remember the breakdown, but let's say your midterm is worth 30%, your finals mm-hmm. worth 30%, and then the other 40 is your homework. So the odds are stacked against you, no matter if you do great on homework anyway, because it, what really matters are those tests. But what I learned in education, you know, they have quizzes, they have multiple exams. So it's not just two that you're like stressing out about, or they do formative assessment, whereas in computer science, it's two exams, you got two shots. And if you don't make it, sorry, good luck. I mean, great. You did great on your homework. <laughs> it's a gold star. Um, and so that's basically what happened. I did greater homework. I tried to do my best. When I did the midterm, I was mm-hmm. in a state of grief and I had already reached out to the Dean of Students for that and, and like got extensions on homeworks, but I don't know what where my mind was. I probably should have pushed the exam or asked for something. And so I didn't do well in the midterm and that messed me up. Yeah, so I got an F on my transcript, a big old F at this big PhD. In contrast, I just want to contrast education. Yeah. One of the last classes I took was some advanced data structure, not data structure, data science class, which I should have not ta- shouldn't have taken that class as my last elective. It was so insane. But anyway, um, it was like statistics on steroids. No. I, oops, I don't know why. Why would I do that to myself? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so anyway, the professor was great, but there were the first homework we did. I answer, it's like, let's say it's 10 questions. I answered nine of the questions. When mm-hmm. I tell you that professor asked me to the, the end of the semester, hey, Kalia, can you answer this last question so I can grade this homework? I was fully prepared to get a 90. He wanted me to answer that last question. I left it on blank on purpose. I don't know the answer. <laughs> he hounded me. That would have never happened in computer science. What? Yeah, he hounded. He's like, can you just answer that last? And I'm like, no. <laughs> it's great. Yes. I don't need a 100. I promise. It's okay. I saw the climate was just different. And I just realized, like, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I did it in undergrad, right? Like, I, I hustled to try to get the grades and just doing hard things. And I'm like, I don't, I don't need this. Right. Right. 
Well, speaking of hard things, so you talk about this committee and let's explain why you need a committee when you're getting a PhD, but then also some of the struggles that you went through. Absolutely. So essentially for a PhD, generally, after you pass your coursework in most programs, there's some kind of comprehensive exam that you have to take, which I think is pretty standard across all the PhD disciplines. For me, my comprehensive exam was a research proposal. I had to do like a mock syllabus for a class that I might want to teach. I think I did an intro to computer science education. I had to do like the teaching statement and probably my CV. But the biggest thing in that is the research plan or whatever. And that tells your committee that you're ready. With the committee, you have a chair. So that's the person who says, hey, Kalia, you're ready for the next level. But it's a committee because you need other people around so that that one person can't hold you back or... It's kind of a checks and balances, if you will. And each department has different requirements. So for the College of Education at Temple, for the PhD in education specifically, you have to have a chair and we have sub-disciplines. So my focus was science, math, and education technology. So in each sub-discipline that you fit in, you needed another committee member from that discipline and one that wasn't in that discipline. And again, it's checks and balances. And then you can also invite external members to your committee. So that means that they're not a temple professor and it's just paperwork that you have to fill out. I was grateful that I had an external committee member, Dr. Yolanda Rankin at Florida State University, because she writes a lot about intersectionality in computer science and how do we use intersectionality to talk about Black women and Black girls along with her colleagues. And so, yeah, it's, it's there for checks and balances, but it can get nuanced, right? Because if you have a really big committee, let's say you have like six people those are that's six people you have to wrangle to get signatures, six people you need to wrangle to be on a, a Zoom call, six people you trying to wrangle to read your dissertation or whatever else, which or your proposal, which they may or may not read, <laughs> six people you, that you need to schedule a date to defend or propose your dissertation. So it gets really nuanced. I, actually, I have four women on my committee. My core committee was two Black women and then a white woman. So it was pretty diverse. It was reflective of me, which is great. I'll say that. I don't know how all programs work. For me, I was able to select all of my committee members. But one of the committee members I mentioned, who was my previous chair before my actual chair was able to be in that position, you know, I learned a lot about trusting my gut in that he was part of my proposal. And the proposal is where you say, hey, this is what I want to do my dissertation on. It's a very long document and you present it to them and they say yes or no, or they say yes, but make these changes, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a situation where so you propose, they go off into a breakout room. If it's virtual, they come back, they say you pass or maybe you didn't pass or you pass, but we want to see these changes on your dissertation. And he decided that he, I guess, didn't agree with the rest of the committee. I was told I passed. Mm-hmm. Cool. Send me the notes. I'll make sure I include them in my dissertation. Right. He sent me the notes, but it was like two phases. It was like, because there was a paper that has to get signed in 30 days after you propose. I sent the paperwork. I get an email back that says, I need you to do these things. And then for your dissertation, I need you to do these things. So basically the situation was he didn't agree that I could move on until I did those things. We need to check off his list. Right. The rest of the committee was unaware because I talked to them about it. The issue is 
after I proposed like in May, I, I proposed on May 11th actually, and it was summertime. So right. the person who ended up being my chair, who was my advisor all along, she had stuff that she was doing. My external committee member, Yolanda, she had stuff that she, I couldn't contact them for two weeks, basically. Ooh. And by the time I got to them, I'd already done the work before I could say, hey, are you aware that he asked me to do this stuff? Right. And they were all like, no, we don't, you passed. <laughs> and so now I'm in this situation where, and, and the craziest thing, Dina, is that he read the intersectionality book and we talked about it. And one of the tenets of intersectionality that Patricia Collins writes is power structures, power, 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 power. And I'm talking about how power keeps black girls out of computer science. And he exerted his power over me moving on to the next phase. And I just couldn't believe it. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You read the book and you're still doing this as a white man, seriously? But as a PhD student, I'm in a rock and a hard place, right? Because it's like, do I have that conversation with someone who does have power at this point? Or do I let someone else have that conversation? And so uh, our research advisor agreed to have the conversation. It finally happened and we were able to remove him and get him replaced. He emailed and apologized. And I'm like, you know, email isn't the modality for this conversation, but let me make sure you are aware of the irony here, right? Right. Um, Again, the dissertation is stressful enough. Me having to have this committee restructuring I'm just like, I shouldn't be doing this. You know, I should be doing my research. So anyway, make sure y'all want to get a PhD. Um, (laughs) Is all I'm saying. My committee ended up being very great. They helped me and they pushed me. Yolanda, who was an external member, was great in making sure that I was using intersectionality as a framework and not just saying I was using it because I had a Black girls, you know, an intersectional population essentially as was more like a partnership because I made sure that the students were aware why I was doing that work, why I was interviewing them and let them read the information too. So. And you keep mentioning, you do not recommend getting a PhD. Why are you saying that? I just exhibit A, B, C, D. Um, No, I I say that because it's just, okay. Here's a real reason why I say that. And because I'm going to clear it up because I know you have a tech audience. You don't need a PhD in tech. You just don't. The job I ended up getting full time, three of us had PhDs, but that was like ironic that that happened. You don't need a, like I was doing user user research as a profession, but I was doing user research at Apple. I didn't have a PhD. (laughs) I could have continued to do user research and, and move up the ranks without a PhD. And so I think when I say don't get one, really what I'm trying to communicate is that is a lot. There, there are so many moving parts. You can absolutely 100% do it. You can do it and, and get to the other side in a way that does not harm you. There's a lot of harm done in the academy. And I just think that you got to be real clear about why. I had somebody actually, they're in the sciences, ask, they tell me they want to get a PhD, right? All these people are inspired by me now. And I'm like, oh, no. Um <laughs> And so I said, well, why? And they were like management. And I was like, a PhD isn't going to teach you how to manage. Right. How these people don't know how to manage. I'm like, I'm surviving my program because I know how to manage up and I know how to manage myself. Like I can manage myself and my advisor because my advisor is not managing me. Let me tell you, she does have a master's and she's been working for like eight or 10 years. I'm like, get a career coach and finish your resume to get a management job. You'll be fine. You don't need this extra debt. <laughs> like, 
they were going to pay for it. It just didn't make sense. Right. And to wrap up our conversation today, how do you foresee putting your PhD to work? I don't know what God has planned for me. (laughs) I thought I was going to go and be a professor and do research and go that route. But I was exposed to a lot through my experience, but also my mentors and decided like, hey, you guys are doing a lot of work and not getting paid a lot for it. For instance, a lot of people don't know that these multi-million dollar grants that professors get, the universities take a very large overhead off the top. They have to write that into their grant. It could be as low as 40% or as high as 55 um, off the top. Mm. When I was writing grants for Intech Camp for Girls, mm-hmm. all that money was ours because they put so much effort into like writing the grants and then you're not, you know, the university just takes half. <laughs> what? It takes a lot. And so it's like that. And, you know, I have mentors who just have not had good experiences in the academy. And I, I think this translates across all industries, but I'm like, why would I willingly put myself in that situation and not get compensated for it? And so my mentality on that may change. I'm very open to teaching. I'm very open to still doing research. I think one of the things I wanted to see through with the PhD is getting getting one of those multi-million dollar grants, even if I'm not the main PI. But I'm also interested in helping like other grassroots nonprofits get published because they're doing amazing work but may not be on the research side and may not be getting published. Intech didn't get published until I wrote the articles about it, the research articles. And so just kind of being a conduit in between smaller organizations and the academy. But during my time, I did decide like, hey, I want to get back in tech. (laughs) You know, I kind of cut my career short. I I kind of cut it. Mm -hmm. So like, let's go. And so I was a senior user researcher at Crunchbase. Till I got laid off, I don't mind sharing that. But now I'm enjoying fun employment and trying to figure out, well, what is next? Will I put my PhD to work? Will I do something else? Will I pivot again? Just got to stay tuned to find out. So to wrap up, what advice, tips, wisdom that we haven't mentioned already that you want to give to the listeners today? The advice I would give, so we talked about how I was working in Apple and running in tech. I was running in tech by itself and I was getting the PhD. One of the things that was pivotal for me during the pandemic specifically was realizing how stress showed up in my body. And I just realized that like, hey, I have to reduce my stress because that's going to one, help me live longer. But like, it's just not sustainable to be stressed all the time. And stress can be good or bad, right? It's you stress. But I realized that like living that lifestyle wasn't sustainable for me anymore. And so I was, that's my advice is to, is to recognize stresses in your life and how you can reduce them. Because whether we realize it or not, it is showing up in our body, like physically. Case in point, I defended my dissertation on February 24th. I tried to get that, that date pushed back and it was like, no, <laughs> you chose the date. We're going to stick with it. You get 30 days after you defend your dissertation to make edits, any edits that, that your committee required of you. And so while you can exhale a little bit, it's still very stressful because it's like, oh man, now I have to write some more. And I don't even want to look at this document anymore. Like, am I not a doctor yet? I went and got a massage in April after all that was done. And I floated out of that massage envy. I was like, oh my God, I was still carrying it. Even though I submitted the final document, I was still carrying so much of that stress. 
in my shoulders and just in my body. And so, you know, don't try to do all the things, y'all. It's okay to just step back and, and do one thing at a time, not multiple. So. And then I have one more question because you mentioned you're on your fun employment. Employment. You're in the unknown, right? You're kind of. <laughs> yes. What advice you have for others? Because a lot of people are in that. Let's be real. There's a lot of layouts going yeah. on. How do you stay motivated and encouraged? <laughs> so the first time I found myself in this kind of space, it was when I left Intech and all I had left was the PhD. And mm-hmm. it was a lot of like, what next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And that actually kind of triggered me in a way where it's like, I don't know what's next. And I'm okay not knowing what's next. I'm just pushing back on the narrative that we have to know what's next. And so I was with it then. Right now, I had to kind of get back here and, and recognize the beauty in the unknown and, and just take the time to exhale. So I shared before we recorded, I'm in Cancun. If you can afford a vacation, <laughs> it doesn't have to be in Cancun. But like, I think getting away has helped reset my and shift my thinking along all of it. There is beauty in the unknown and there's more. And you know what? My, my motto last year was giving up the good for the great. And I believe I'm in that season again. My last job was great. It was good. But I think there's something greater in store. Do the things that bring you joy and be surrounded by people that also bring you joy and that can continue to pour into you. I think that's what's helped me as well. And also, I'm going to use that phrase, giving up the good for the great, because we need it. Yes. Mm. Listen, everything (laughs) I did last year, everything I did that was like that felt good. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I even moved out of like the apartment I had been living in in Philly and did some temporary housing. Even that got better. Everything I wanted to hold on to that just felt so good. It's like, why am I disrupting this? Literally, that would be greater on the other side. Down to like switching my, uh, I had a storage unit in Philly that I used to keep in tech stuff in. Okay. I switched my storage unit cause I had some sketchy stuff happening in mine. Uh-huh. Went to a greater, a greater situation in a brand new space. It was cheaper closer i was like look at that <laughs> you know it would have been easier to just keep all my crap in one place and not move it but it got so much bad like literally small examples like that to, to bigger ones it, it the good got greater yes i love that thank you for the wonderful conversation today definitely enjoyed you and i know that this is going to help a lot of people who are listening so just want to say thank you and i appreciate you no problem thanks for having me Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast.